0: Well, today we're gonna to be journeying through the tabernacle all the way to the very end. If we put that picture of the tabernacle up, we've been in a series called Worthy and uh, we've been talking about this tabernacle and we've been talking about the specific elements of the tabernacle. And so the way that the tabernacle was situated was that each element was sequential. You, you stopped at one place before you went to the next and only priests were allowed to minister into the tabernacle. In the first week, we talked about how uh, you have been ordained as a priest of God. The moment that we come to, to the saving faith of Jesus, we belong to the family of God and we are brought into the priesthood. So we minister to God and we talk about, we've been talking about this old covenant tabernacle that we see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, something that God instructed Moses to build. The reason we've been talking about the old covenant tabernacle is because Hebrew says that there is a heavenly tabernacle That this tabernacle is only a shadow of or a copy of. And so what we see happening in the earthly tabernacle is happening in the heavenly one where we have a high priest. Jesus is our high priest in heaven who's ministering in the tabernacle. And so we talked about the gates that we enter to the house of God. We enter with thanksgiving and with praise. And we talked about the altar of sacrifice that this is where it begins that before you even move forward into the tabernacle you stop at the altar and, and Romans 12.1 says that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And so we're called to give the Lord our, our sacrifice of, of, uh, the, uh, of our lives, to submit to him. We give our lives to Jesus. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that's where everything starts. And then we move forward. We talked about the bronze basin, which represents the washing of the word of God. We talked about the table of showbread, which is an Old Testament foreshadow of communion that we do today. We talked about, uh, uh, last week, we talked about the golden lampstand, which represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And today, we are moving all the way through to the holiest of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant resides. Now, before I started studying the Bible and knew anything about the the Ark of the Covenant, the only thing I knew about the Ark of the Covenant came from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember that scene? That scene where the Germans finally get to open what's inside, and as they open up what's inside the Ark of the Covenant, their faces melt off, and they start to melt like wax, and I remember as a kid that being a horrifying scene. It was very scary, and now when I watch it today, it's a little corny, you know? (laughs) But you know, Indiana Jones, they they didn't get everything right about the Ark of the Covenant, but I would have to say they didn't get everything wrong either. That, That I would say that if the Germans stole the Ark of the Covenant in in biblical times, in the first century, their faces would have melted off long before they saw what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, like other elements in the holy place, it was made out of acacia wood. And it was overlaid with gold. And we've been talking about how acacia wood is a wood that doesn't rot. It doesn't decay. And and, uh, all the elements in the holy place and and the altar of sacrifice, it was all made of acacia wood because it represents the incorruptible humanity of Jesus. That he was human without sin. That he was immortal. That he rose again. And so uh, the acacia wood represents the humanity of Jesus. And it was overlaid With gold, which represents deity or godship or lordship, kingship. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three items. There was Aaron's rod that budded with almond blossoms. There was a jar of manna. And there was the stone tablets that Moses inscribed the Ten Commandments on. And all three of these elements represent a different person of Jesus, a different uh, element of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the, The blossom represents the resurrection power. The almond blossom is the first tree to blossom after winter. And so this almond blossom represents the new life or the newness, the refreshing life of Jesus that he he rose again. And this jar of manna represents that Jesus is your sustainer, that he provides for you, just like God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. And the stone tablets represent the holiness of God, that he is just, he is right, and he has a way uh, that gives us access into his presence. And God's presence literally rested inside the Ark of the Covenant because he wanted to dwell among his people. He came from heaven and he put his presence inside of the Ark of the Covenant and wherever Israel went. And when they obeyed the Lord, they brought the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant with them and they were successful and prosperous. But just like in Indiana Jones, the Ark was extremely dangerous. Why? Why was it extremely dangerous? Because, because it was full of light. It was full of God's presence. And you can't separate God's holiness from his presence. It's who he is. He is holy. God's, present, God's presence, it, it, he, he, God does not just do good things. He is goodness. He's always perfect. He's always good. He's always just. He is light. And what happens to darkness when you turn the light on? It gets destroyed, Right? It's not the light's fault. It's what happens to darkness when you turn on the light. Darkness gets expelled. It is destroyed. It's what light does to darkness. It's just the way that it is. Isaiah 64, 6 describes the darkness that we have inside of our hearts. Those of us who, who are, are far from God, uh, before we came to Jesus, we, we had this sinful nature about us that, that made us so that we couldn't approach God's light. We couldn't approach God's presence in Isaiah 64, 6. It says that we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Humanity was infected with darkness because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Adam and Eve, they were the archetype of humanity that revealed what every person unsubmitted to God desires. They desire the ability to choose what's right and wrong apart from God. That's what Adam and Eve did. In the garden, God said, you can eat of any fruit, just don't eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and Adam and Eve, they said, no, they were, they were deceived by the serpent. And the serpent said, no, 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 God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because he knows that it'll make you like him. Little did they know that God already made them in his image. Adam and Eve were already created in the image of God, but the serpent said, no, if you eat the, of this fruit, you'll be like God. God has a gift that he's trying to withhold from you. No, that wasn't true. God was trying to protect their innocence. God was trying to be the one that defined what was right and wrong. And Adam and Eve said, no, we want to be in charge of what's right and wrong. We want to determine in our lives what we can do and what we can choose apart from God. This was the beginning of sin. And so once a year, the high priest in the tabernacle, he would enter the Holy of Holies. Only one time out of the year. And he would sprinkle blood upon the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the nation, both the conscious sins and the unconscious sins of the nation. And see, the priests, they wore robes that had little jingle bells shaped like pomegranates on them. And And ministering in the holiest of holies was so dangerous that they tied a rope to the priest's waist when he went inside. And so as long as they heard the jingling of his little pomegranate bells on his robe, they knew that he was okay. But if they heard jingle, 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 thump, followed by silence, they would use that rope to drag that priest's body out of the presence, out of the, out of the holiest of holy places. The light eradicated the darkness. See, God, he wanted to be with his people. But there was a process that needed to be followed. So God provided two things to protect the priest from his holiness. And these are the two things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the veil God provided the veil, but he also provided the altar of incense. Let's start with the veil. What was the veil? The veil is what separated, if you put that picture of the tabernacle on the screen again, see, you have the holy place here, and then that dotted line right there is the veil, and it's what separated the Ark of the Covenant, the presence and the holiness of God from the priests that were ministering in the holy place. So the veil is what separated the holy place from where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and it was to keep them safe. And after the construction of the temple, you got to understand, I used to think that this veil was just like a, kind of a thin see-through veil that was just barely there to separate rooms and kind of provide an indication. No, that's not what the veil was. Uh, biblical scholars can, can tell you that the veil that was built in, the temp- in Solomon's temple was over 60 feet high, And Jewish tradition suggests that it was four inches thick. So picture this four inch thick, 60 foot high curtain. This is a massive curtain. And then the second thing that God provided to protect the people from his presence was the altar of incense. And just like I mentioned before, the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. But before he would enter the Holy of Holies, he would light the altar of incense And he would open up the veil just enough to slide the altar of incense under the veil. And he would not enter the Holy of Holies until the room was filled with the smoke of the altar of incense. The reason that they did that was because the priests were not allowed to look directly at the Ark of the Covenant. So the smoke provided a covering or a a protection. So they, they could be in God's presence as long as they were covered. As long as they were protected and the smoke filled the room. They would wait for the, for, the, for the room to be full of this incense smoke. And the altar of incense represents intercessory prayer. It represents prayer. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And Leviticus 16.13 describes the role of, of the altar of incense it says he is to put the incense on the fire before the lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets on the covenant law so that he will not die prayer is an expression of worship half of our songs that we sing are simply prayers set to music and god never intended for those two things to be separate prayer and worship they go hand in hand have you ever seen incense before? You ever seen? They come in all shapes. They come in little cones. They come in sticks. But, but incense in its purest, most simplest form is just a pile of smelly dirt. It's a pile of fragrant dirt. And that incense doesn't create smoke unless you first, what? Put a fire on it, right? You have to light it on fire. It only rises when you put a fire under it. And did you know That the fire that lit the wicks of the golden lampstand came from the altar of incense. And the coals that lit the fire at the altar of incense came from the altar of sacrifice. The first place that you would stop in the temple. So where did the fire at the altar of sacrifice come from? It came from God. Check this out. Leviticus 9, verse 22 through 24. Says, after that, Aaron raised his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then, after presenting the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering, he stepped down from the altar. Then Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle. And when they came back out, they blessed the people again. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell face down on the ground. Wow. This is the story of the first worship service that took place after the tabernacle was built. They finished building the meeting place. They consecrated the priests. They offered all the sacrifices. And then God answered with fire. The fire of God shot down from heaven. It landed on the Ark of the Covenant. And then it shot through the holy place and consumed the the offering on the altar of sacrifice there was a pre- there was a precedent being established here that any time a priesthood or a temple or tab- tabernacle was dedicated or consecrated to god god's glory would appear in that place it happened in 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 the construction of the tabernacle that we just, just, that we just saw in Leviticus. It happened in Solomon's temple. When they finished building Solomon's temple, the same thing happened. Fire from heaven came down and consumed the altar. And guess what? It also happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when God was ordaining his followers to be priests and to be temples of the Holy Spirit. God appeared in tongues of fire above their head, as we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But let's keep reading what happened next. So God comes, he consumes the altar, he consumes the offering that's on the altar, and the very next verses say this, Leviticus 10, verse 1 through 3. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals on the fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. That's encouraging. Thanks, pastor. And they died there before the Lord. Have a nice day, everybody. Thanks for coming to church. (laughs) Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. And Aaron was silent. Poor Aaron. The first day that his sons get to minister in the tabernacle, they did it wrong. And they get burnt up. Well, what happened here? Aaron's sons went to minister and they disobeyed right away. See, instead of using the fire that God provided at the altar, they whipped out their ancient Bick lighters. And they did it in a way that was most convenient for them. Here's the lesson. They tried to minister using their own fire. But the only fire that is acceptable for ministry is the one that God lights. See, when it's a man-made fire, this is called religion. Religion is a man-made fire and it's an abomination to the Lord. Religion must be sustained by human methods and it's eventually going to fail. But God's fire is sustained by intimacy with God's heart. Did you know that everything that God does, the flesh tries to counterfeit? Everything God does, the flesh tries to counterfeit. The first humans did it in the garden. God told them that they were made in the image of God. But they thought that by eating the fruit, they could do the same thing. They could make themselves like God. God says, no, I've already made you in my image. When I created you. But instead they whipped out their own lighters. And they they wanted to create their own encounter. They wanted to create their own identity. When it had already happened. See we see this in churches today. That when there's a move of God that comes. And we see healing and prophecy break out. there's, There's all these moves of the Holy Spirit. There's always people who attempt to conjure the same experience apart from God's fire. And they, they operate out of their own power. They operate out of their own flesh. And it's a man-made fire. It's not sustainable. It's, it's, it's just a bunch of emotion. It's just a bunch of hype. But it's not real because it's not God's fire. I don't want to be a church. I don't want to have a church without God's fire. I don't want to come to church without God's fire. I don't want to live my life as a follower of Jesus without God's fire. Can I ask you, church, when is the last time that you let your heart grieve for someone that you were praying for? When's the last time you wept over the sins of our nation? When was the last time you let yourself get angry about the evil deeds of the devil? When was the last time you got excited about the wonderful work of the cross? When was the last time you let your heart burn for something? That kind of fire is ignited by God. That passion that that fire is ignited by God and prayer rises when it burns. Just like incense, our prayers rise to heaven when they are lit by God's power, by God's Holy Spirit. Incense protected the priest from God's holiness. Intercession, prayer, still protects the world from the just sentence of holiness against sin. Not only do believers intercede for the world today, but our Savior Jesus is also interceding for us. He is the great intercessor. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25, <clears throat> it says this. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. In other words, uh, the, a priest's term, were, was, it was a life term. So once the high priest died, they would get a new high priest. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able... Once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Romans 8.34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is the great intercessor. And the cross was the ultimate act of intercession and it provided the smoke necessary to cover us from the perfect requirements of holiness because of jesus's intercession on the cross we can come into the presence of god he's a just god and we can come into his presence without fear of being destroyed because we have a covering it's the covering of jesus christ so in other words when you come to jesus and you've you've wandered away, you've done, you've done your own thing for so many years, and you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I was wrong. I I need your saving power in my life. From that moment on, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees you covered and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, I have nothing against you any longer. Jesus took the wrath. And Jesus paid the price on the cross so you don't have to pay any longer. You don't have to die. The Bible says that the punishment of sin is death. And Jesus took that. Jesus was our covering, so when we come to God, he looks at us and he sees the covering of Jesus and says, yes, come into my presence. Come have a relationship with me. You don't have to fear me. You don't have to worry about condemnation or shame or guilt or anything else. You are free to have a relationship with the living God because of the covering of Jesus Christ. Intercession is the action of intervening on behalf of another person. And even while hanging on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was interceding for those who put him on the cross, even in his last moments. And then this happened, church. Just a few verses later, Luke chapter 23, verse 44 through 46. It says, By this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock the light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain, the veil in the sanctuary at the temple was torn down the middle. And Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Imagine this, church. This 60 foot tall, four inch thick curtain comes crashing down from top to bottom. Why was it torn from top to bottom? Because God did it. He ended the ministry of the veil and decided that the temple was no longer where he wanted to reside and he would never return to that temple ever again. Instead, he would find a home within bodily temples. He would find a home within his church. You and I, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We carry The presence of God. And he made his home in his people after that. See, the purpose of the veil, it was now obsolete. Because the purpose of the veil was to separate people from God's presence. And God and Jesus made a way for us to enter to God's presence. But the purpose of the altar, the altar of incense, intercessory prayer, that was still intact. Because the purpose of the altar of incense was to cover people in the midst of God's presence. We now have access because the veil was removed, but Jesus still protects us from God's holiness as the high priest in heaven who's interceding on our behalf, who paid the price for us and who stays God's hand from his people. And and now we get to experience the love of God, the, the tenderness of God, the intimacy of God, because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. It's not directed at you. Let me, I, I want to be very clear. Maybe you came to church today and you were hesitant because your experience coming to church up to this point has been judgment, has been condemnation, has been, I hope they don't ask me this question about my life because I don't want to answer those questions. I, I just want to stay away from those conversations. Maybe, maybe your experience of coming to church has been that up to this point. But I'm here to tell you the truth that God does not condemn you. He does not judge you. He has been waiting He has been waiting for you to come and he is here with open arms ready to embrace you. And the only reason that that can happen is because Jesus paid the price for all of your sin because he loves you so much. He was the covering. Picture this scene with me, church. All right. You are a priest ministering in the temple during the time of Jesus' death. You're in, the, you're in the holy place and you know that there was a man around town named Jesus who was claiming to be the son of God and you know that today was supposed to be the day of his execution and then Jesus breathes his last and the veil that you're standing right next to, 60 foot tall, four inch thick veil, gets torn in half from heaven and drops to the floor and as you look beyond the veil into the holiest of holy places, what do you see? you wouldn't see anything. You know why? Because the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they captured the Ark of the Covenant last time they invaded Jerusalem. And so the time, during the time of Roman rule when Jesus died on the cross, the Ark of the Covenant was missing. There was nothing beyond the curtain. And as a priest, you realize that all of this time, I've been serving in the name of God, but apart from the presence of God. I've been doing all these things for God thinking I'm a great person but God was never here. His presence was never here. That's the epitome of religion, church. It's like the scene in Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and Toto and the Tin Man and the the Lion and the Scarecrow they finally reach the wizard and they look beyond the curtain and what do they see? A silly old little man and a bunch of machinery with a bunch of theatrics the priests had been practicing theatrics an empty ritual manipulating and controlling people with their religious machines but god was not in that temple his presence was not there many churches today need to wake up because sunday after sunday desperate people come looking for god and we as believers, we flaunt the blessings of Jesus, the blessings of following Jesus. But when they pull back the curtain in your life, what are they going to see? When they pull back the curtain in your house, what are they going to find? When they pull back the curtain at church, at your church, are they going to find the presence of God? Or are they going to find an empty room? We've been granted access into God's presence. And he invites us to come and to know him, but unfortunately, people still gravitate towards religion, there's this old song, I hate this song, it goes, give me that old time religion, that old time religion, give me that old time religion, it's good enough for me, is it good enough for you? Yeah, sure, it's good enough for you, if you never want to know God, There's some differences between religion and knowing God, friends. And for the rest of our time today, for these last few minutes, I'm just going to talk about the differences between religion and knowing God and how to move out of living religiously and into knowing God. Can we talk about that? Number one, religion tells you what to do. Knowing God reveals who you are. Let me say that again. Religion tells you what to do. Knowing God reveals who you are. You are not God's slave. You are not God's slave. You are His son and His daughter. If your faith is in God, if your faith in God is void of intimacy, you will live like a slave who finds value in what they do and what they bring to the table. If I went to church, if I read my Bible, if I prayed, if I did all these things, I'm a good person, right? Your identity and religion is found in what you do, but knowing God, it reveals who you are. Ephesians 1.5, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God does not want slaves to do his bidding. He wants a bigger family. God wants a bigger family. He wants more sons, more daughters, more people that he can show his love to. Because he's your heavenly father, you have access to all of his infinite resources. And you're sustained by him who is in control of everything. So here's what we need to do. We need to move from enduring religion and start enjoying the father like he enjoys you. Did you know that God not only loves you, but he likes you? Pastor, that's a... That's a hard thing for me to understand. I don't I don't believe you. No, no, no. Hear me. God loves you, but he also likes you. He enjoys spending time with you. He when he created you, a big smile showed up on his face and he said, That is perfect. That is so good. I am so glad that I made them with all of these little these little things that they're going to consider flaws. They're going to consider these things. They don't like these things about themselves. But I love all of this about this person. He likes you. He enjoys you. Enjoy the father like he enjoys you. That's how we move into knowing God. The second thing is this. Religion is motivated by obligation. Knowing God is cultivated in gratitude. Religion is about doing good things so that you can avoid going to hell. It's about earning your way, about getting your golden ticket. And when you know God and you experience his grace, you live and serve from a place of gratitude. You're thankful. So you live out of that gratitude into knowing God. Christina and I, we had a date night a couple weeks ago and we went to the bowling alley. It's like the only thing to do around here, you guys. Go to the bowling alley. Somebody give you new ideas. We go to the bowling alley a lot. She's been beating me all the time at the bowling alley. I'm not even lying. I don't know what she's been doing. She's been practicing. But we we went to the bowling alley and we met this couple who were about our age. And we started talking about God. In fact, the conversation started, we were talking about some some loved ones that we lost. And and I started asking him about what he believes happens after somebody dies. And do you believe something's going to happen when you die? What is that thing? And and I started sharing with him about what I believe is going to take place. That we're either going to heaven or we're going to hell. And it's all based upon your faith in Jesus and whether or not you decide to say yes to Jesus. And you know what he told me? He said, well, yeah, but I, I, I'm kind of willing, willing just to see what happens. Yeah, I, I've been a really good person. I think I do more good things than I do bad things. And then he started telling me about this time where he saw this old woman on the road and he stopped and he helped her with her groceries. And he was like, oh, see, I'm a good person. He's trying to prove to me that he's a good person. See, religion is all, his, is all he's ever experienced. He doesn't know what it's like to know God. But you know who taught him about religion? Bad Christians. Bad Christians taught him about religion. And so that all, that's all he knows. is that If I live a good life, if I live a good life and I do good things and I do more good things than bad things, then the scales are going to tip in my favor at the end of eternity. And God will say, okay, you did enough. Good job. Religion is is motivated by obligation. But when you experience God's grace, you live in gratitude and you know God more deeply because you live from a place of gratitude for the grace that he's shown you in your life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, look at all the good stuff I've done. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, a grateful son or daughter of God does not condemn others or hold things against people when they're wronged, because they know how much they've been shown grace, and they live out of that gratitude. When they interact with people, people who hurt them, people who wrong them. They don't lash out in anger. They don't lash out in condemnation. They don't lash out out of this place of hurt. They lash out in forgiveness. They extend kindness because they know how much they have been shown grace. We need to move from earning God's love to truly being grateful for God's love and extending that love to others. And here's the last thing. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we, as we close this time. The last thing is this religion inspires hypocrisy but knowing god inspires humility religion creates a polished image of the church of god's people and it inspires people to keep up this facade religious people they don't like to admit weakness or fault or ask for forgiveness because it shows that they're wrong it shows that there's something that they're they've been hiding But people that know God, they live out of humility, fully aware that they are weak, that they've done wrong, that they need a savior. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11. It says, each time Jesus said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in what? Weakness. And now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. What are you talking about, Paul? He says, I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults and the hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then he is strong. Knowing God inspires a life that says I don't have it all together and I'm okay to admit that. I am just a beggar showing other beggars where to find the bread. When you know God, you live out of this place of humility, it cultivates humility. We need to move from hypocrisy, from, from when people come to you at church and say, how's your week been? How you doing? And you've had a rough week. And You say, oh, it's great. I'm doing fine. How's your kids doing? Oh, they're great. How's your marriage doing? Oh, it's great. But inside, you're thinking, man, I'm falling apart. And I don't feel like I can trust this person because I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by gossip. I've been hurt by judgment. And I don't want to tell this person. I don't want to let them in. So I'm just going to keep the facade. I'm going to keep up the show. And here's the thing I'll keep up the show if you keep up the show. Keep, keep going on with the show because, because I don't want you to ask me about my personal life. So if, if you don't ask me about my personal life, then I won't ask you about your personal life. We won't get too deep. We'll keep it really surface. Religion inspires hypocrisy. This, this idea that we have to make it look like everything's okay. But knowing God, when you have an intimate relationship with God, you are invited to embrace your weaknesses to embrace the fact that i don't have it all together that i'm messed up that i need help i need a savior church of the world is angry and broken it's divided people desperately desire god did you know that people desire god but they don't know where to find him they don't know his name or who he is like but you are a priest You are a priest of God and you are charged with carrying God's presence. You are charged with stewarding meeting places between God and his people. Our world is is hungry for a real encounter with God and you are a priest. It It is your responsibility to show them how to meet God, to steward those meeting places and invite people into his family. You carry the presence of God with you wherever you go. And guess what? You have Jesus who is continually interceding for you. Did you know that we have a God? Jesus is, is on the throne right now and he's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's saying, Holy Spirit, would you go and would you fill them with power? Holy Spirit, would you fill them with comfort and with peace and with boldness and with faith? Would you give them exactly what they need? Would they not fear what people think about them, but would they be filled with courage and boldness to preach the gospel throughout the world with faith? And with? We have a high priest who is interceding on your behalf. And when we feel like we're weak and we can't do it anymore, Jesus is in heaven going, you got this. You've got this. I'm filling you with my presence. I'm filling you with my power. Sometimes we feel alone, church. Like nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows what what my pain is. And nobody, nobody cares. You have a God who cares. And he is interceding for you, church. Before we move to baptism, I just want to take just a couple minutes to to worship God by interceding for those around us. Family, friends, spouses, children, let God light a fire within you that fuels your intercession. Allow your heart to burn for something again, church. You know, when people come to you and they tell you what they need, don't ever look at them and say, I'll be praying for you, if you don't actually mean that you're gonna be praying for them. Instead, when people come, say when you say, I'll be praying for you, mean it. Spend some time in prayer and let God light that fire of intercession inside of you. Can we pray? And as we pray, I want you to think of one person, a child, a spouse, a loved one, a friend, maybe somebody that you're having a hard time with. Somebody who's been, who's been wrong to you. Put that person in your head. And as we pray, let's just begin to intercede for them. Begin to, begin to ask God to intervene. Jesus, right now, we come to you with, with these people in our life. And we ask, Lord, that you would do something that only you can do which is to change their heart and to show them a new perspective. God, you can can prepare us and you can make us people who are gonna be good influences, but Father, the change only comes through your Holy Spirit's power. So Holy Spirit, just begin to do a work. Show us how we can model Jesus better to others. We love you, Jesus, with our whole hearts. And everyone said, Amen.